Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We have been in a series called Hearts Reunited, where we have been... Hold on a second, I'm going to start my timer because this is going to go long. Embrace yourselves, guys. (laughs) I'm just joking, kind of, maybe, hopefully. Anyways, we've been in a series called Hearts Reunited, where we have been looking at the foundations of the universal church of God through the, the lens of how those foundations were expressed in the early church. We've been using Acts 2.42 through 47 as a launch point to dive in to how to be devoted to God's kingdom, like, just like the early church was. So let's turn in your Bibles or your phone apps or whatever to Acts 2.42, and we're going to read. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you've brought us here together in the house of the Lord. Um, whether here in physical in a physical presence or in spirit, thank you, God, that we get to join together with all the people around the world just worshiping you and glorifying your name. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today, God, that you would remove anything in us that would close you off, that would turn off your word. Pray that you would give us soft hearts, Lord, that would receive what you have for us and that we'll be changed by you. Um, God, pray that you would get me out of the way and that your words would ring out and uh, sink into our hearts and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the past weeks, we have been breaking down these different areas of devotion and how they apply to our lives. We've looked at how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and how that relates to how we interact with the Bible and the gospel. We looked at how they devoted themselves to fellowship and to prayer and how we are called to do the same. Today, we're going to talk about how followers of Jesus are called to be radically generous. In Acts 2, and 45, we read that they were together and had everything in common. They even sold property and possessions to be able to give to anyone who had need. They were devoted to generosity, and we are called to be the same way. But that means we're going to have to talk about money. Now, if you're like most Americans, that might cause you to clench your teeth and stiffen up a bit. There's an old saying that the three topics you're not supposed to talk about are religion, money, and politics. But we're in church with God talking about money, so that's two out of three. But I'm not going to talk about politics. Nothing's in my notes, so you can take like a little bit of breath of relief. I'm not breaking all three. Now, believe it or not, Eben did not throw me under the bus with this topic. He wasn't like, oh, money? You got that, Jason. We actually fought over it. He felt that as the pastor of the church, it was his job and his right to talk about this topic, and he was absolutely right. But 
Even still, I practically begged him to let me talk about this for a couple of reasons. First, I wanted to talk about this topic in order to dodge a certain kind of cynicism. Because in America, there's this idea, this, like, this trope of the money-grubbing preacher who's always after your money, the uh, church that's always after your pocketbook, right? They're always passing around the offering plate, always trying to drain your bank account. They need a new parking lot. They need a new library. Pastor needs a better vacation. Pastor needs a private jet. Well, guess what, though, guys? <laughs> I don't get paid by the church, Right? You can give a million dollars in the offering plate, and I won't see a dime. Also, I don't know the church budget. I don't work for the church. I just go here. So you can know with a certainty that everything I say is not motivated by anything personally interest. And that's one of the lies Satan always tries to get, tries to get us with. Like, oh, those people, they're not. God doesn't really say that about your money. That's just them trying to line their pocketbooks. But now you know that will be a lie because I see nothing. I will still be poor after the sermon. <laughs> Why else did I want to talk about this? Because honestly, it's an area that I struggle with, right? There have been moments in my life where I've been spirit-filled and done something or many things that were like very generous. And people are like, oh my gosh, how could you be so generous? Clearly a God thing. Because on the whole, I find myself struggling in the area of finances and giving and trusting God instead of my money. I'm going to say a lot of things today that make me uncomfortable. A lot of things that I know that I have to repent of. Things that challenge me. And so I wanted to talk about this topic for my own sake, selfishly, because studying the scriptures and what God has to say about my money and possessions is the medicine for the money sickness that my soul needs. And lastly, I felt like I needed to talk to, about this. I wanted to talk about this because God talks about this. God talks about money and possessions so much, more than many other topics that we know are important for our lives. When I was doing research for this, I read in numerous places that there are about 500 verses in the Bible on prayer and faith. But there are over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell. I read a statistic that about 40% of Jesus' parables deal with money. So, if God thinks this is important... We have to throw our squeamishness out of the way, and we have to listen to what he has to say. But why does God talk so much about money? Why does he care? Why is it so important to him? Mainly, money is so important to God because money is so important to us. It is one of the primary idols that we turn to in worship. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But still, we try. We try to serve money because through money, we can become our own gods. Because if you have enough money, you can feel protected from the limitations of your humanity, right? You don't have to worry as much about hardships when you can just buy your way out of them. You can bless yourselves with luxuries and comfort. You don't have to trust God with blessings. You can just buy it. You can feed yourself the choicest of foods. 
You can even convince yourselves that you can stave off your own mortality because you, have, you can buy the best health care and the best doctors that money can buy. Through money, you can elevate your status, gain power, surround yourselves with other powerful people, and feel the weight of your influence on the world. But Jesus says that it is extremely difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. An abundance of money can actually be a barrier to the real blessings that God wants to give you, blessings that will last for an eternity. But that's just for the rich people, right? It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But no one here, to my knowledge, is like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Like, no one here is buying rocket ships for fun, right? So they obviously would have a hard time entering the kingdom of heaven because of all their richness. But what about me? I mean, I'm broke. <laughs> but, but money is still important to me, right? And why is money important to me? It's honestly all of those same reasons just shrunk down to a broke person scale. I, I don't need a crazy amount of money. I just need a little bit more, right? I need to have enough so that I don't have to worry about paying my bills. So that if my clothes don't fit, I can just buy some new ones. So that if one of my girls needs dental work, my wife doesn't have to jump through a million insurance hoops just to try to make sure that we can figure out a way to pay for it. I want to not worry when something needs fixing on the car or the house or whatever just because I have enough money to just take care of it. I don't want to have to worry and pray and wait for God to move. I want to be able to trust myself and be independent. I want to be able to do these things without having to depend on God. I don't want to have to lean on community. I want enough money to be free of the reminders of the reality that I'm completely dependent on God for every good thing. I don't want to be rich. I just want to be a little richer. But that's still a trap, right? First, in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, Paul writes that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's not just having money that can trip you up. It's the desire for money. That desire for the sense of power and freedom and independence that money gives you. But the freedom that money promises is nothing compared to the freedom of living the way that God calls you to live. God is not after your money to make you miserable. He wants to make you truly free. God knows the wise biblical truth that mo money, mo problems. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. As much as the American dream wants to tell you otherwise, more is not always better. The more things you possess, the more things possess you. You slowly and subtly change from being a consumer to being the consumed. Our desperate attempts to claw at the freedom that money brings ends up leaving us shackled to all of the things of this world. 
but God wants us to walk in the freedom that we are connected to him, to our loving Father who protects and provides for us, who knows all of our needs, according to Matthew 6.32, and he will meet all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, which is Philippians 4.19. Commanding us to be open-handed with our money and possessions, commanding us to be actively generous, is one of the methods that God uses to free us from the shackles of our possessions. And God ta- also talks about money so much because its hold on us is hard to detect. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people and he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He says, watch out and be on your guard. There are many kinds of greed and they are all sneaky. It is difficult to know when you've been infected by them. Sometimes greed looks like hoarding, where you buy and buy and buy and want and want everything that you see. But sometimes greed looks like saving and saving and saving, where you spend almost nothing because you don't want to be wasteful. You always want to have money to fall back on. You always want to make sure you get the most bang for every dime you spend. Sometimes greed is about status. And you'll buy or do things based on what will make you popular and approved by the right people. You want to have the trendy things, the fashionable things, whatever is cool and acceptable to the group of people that you like. Or perhaps you have the greed of discontent. You don't feel like you want a million things or expensive things or shiny things. You just want something different. You don't like what you have. It's janky or it's broken or dingy or maybe nothing is wrong with it at all. Maybe you're just bored with it. And of course, we're not just stuck with just one kind of greed. Our life pushes and pulls us in different directions in different circumstances. Greed is constantly trying to sneak into our hearts. So God calls us to a different life of radical generosity in order to protect us and keep us free. Because money does actually have good uses. God has and does and will bless his people with money and possessions. God talks about money not because money is always evil, but because there is a right and good and freeing way to use it. But we need his wisdom and his power in order to use money wisely. The way we use our money displays our heart's true direction. It has been said that you can see what a person truly values by looking at how and where and why they spend their money. What do you see when you look at your bank statements, your credit card purchases, when you think about where your money goes? Like, honestly, for me, this is one of those cringe places for me. Like, how quickly does my money go to spending on food or a cheap deal on, like, a video game or something or some other unnecessary trinket without even a thought to how God wants me to use it? Because it's not that God never wants us to use money on ourselves, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up for treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 
Having things to enjoy is a blessing from God. But how am I doing with being generous and willing to share? When I go to spend my money, am I thinking about the commandment to do good and to be rich in good deeds? Am I actively looking for ways to be generous, for ways to spend my money that show my love for God? Like, I can say that I love God and that I'm free from the love of money until I'm blue in the face, but it means little until I put my money where my mouth is, to use a human expression, or to use a biblical expression, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, how do we use the blessings God gives us for his glory instead of our own? How do we own things without being owned by them? How do we stay on guard against all kinds of greed? We don't need to worry because, like I said, God has a lot to say on this topic. The first and most important step to being free from money's control and free to be generous is to recognize that God is God and that your money is not God. Also, your money is not your money, even if you feel like you are the one who worked to earn it. As God was preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land, he tells them in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18, you may say to yourself, (laughs) my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Isaiah 26, 12 says, Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. So you may have done the work, but God did the work to make you be able to do the work. In 1 Chronicles 29, David had sweat and fought and killed and risen to become one of the wealthiest kings in all the land. Lots of sweat, lots of hard work went into becoming the king and becoming the king of such a big kingdom. And when they were going to build the temple... He gave what amounts to today about $6 billion of his own personal gold, let alone all the other gifts he gave, in order to help build God's temple. But how does David feel about this extravagant, lavish gift to God? In 1 Chronicles 29, 14, he says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, God, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. In verse 16, he adds, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. It was easy for him to give so much because he recognized that it was never his in the first place. It was always God's. In verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 29, he says, everything in heaven and earth is God's. So good news, church. God does not after your money. All the silver and gold already belong to him, according to Haggai. In Psalm 50, God says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. I don't need you. So when the offering bucket or basket is passed around, God's not looking over your shoulder, wringing his hands and being like, oh gosh, I hope they put enough money in. The church lights need to stay on. He doesn't care. If God wanted to close this church down, you could give a zillion dollars and he would just close it down like that. 
He could smash this whole place with a meteor if he wanted to. If God wants this church to endure, and you're like, well, he's not getting any of my money. God doesn't care. He can make money literally appear out of thin air, right? There was a story in, uh, when Jesus was on the earth where some people were, were after him to pay the temple tax. They were like, hey, uh, Jesus, you need to pay the temple tax. And Jesus was like, I don't have to. But fine, Peter, here's what I want you to do. Go, go to the river, fish. Pull out the first fish you find, look in its mouth, and then bring what you have here. So Peter's like, okay, fine. He goes fishing, pulls up a fish, looks in its mouth, and there's a coin in the fish's mouth of the exact amount to pay for not just Jesus, but for Peter too. God does not need your money. (laughs) But what God does want is your heart. He wants your worship. Because remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. When we honor God with our wealth, it shows that he is our true treasure. Giving generously is an act of worship that frees our hearts from the control of money. Also, giving generously is a practical, tangible display of our love for others, which is a practical, tangible display of our love for God. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. To paraphrase 1 John 4.19-21, No one can love the God that they have not seen if they don't love the people that they can see. God, and also, God has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. In 1 John um, 3, 16 and 18, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. If you see someone in need and you have no pity to move to help them, how can the love of God be in you? How can you, be trans- how can you say that you've been transformed by God's love? And we're not just talking about pity like, oh, I feel sorry for that person. We're talking about generous action. Our generosity is used as a litmus test of the transformation of our hearts. In Luke 16, 9 through 12, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal blessings or dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, Who will give you property of your own? As a side note, (laughs) I love how Jesus contrasts worldly wealth with true riches. Like like the worldly wealth doesn't even matter. Like, oh, that's not even real riches. I want to give you true riches. Like there's something so much better in store for us when we live God's way. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then 
the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, um, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to eat or drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Then they will also answer, Lord, whoa, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And Jesus ends with, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. That's heavy. Like the way that we use the money, time, and resources that God gives us is such an indicator of the state of our hearts that it will help determine whether you are a true follower of Jesus, a true member of his family, or someone who just comes to church every once in a while, someone who just prays, you know, when they have a need. And did you notice that Jesus was not just talking about being generous and giving with money? For some of us, throwing some money toward the cause is easy. Just don't ask me to give my precious, valuable time. It could be easier to give a $20 bill to a homeless person than to give up your Tuesdays and Saturdays to serve people at Seeds of Hope, or to open your home to invite people in to share a meal, or to visit someone in the hospital. But God calls us to be generous, not just with our money, but with our entire lives. Now, just to be clear, being generous does not save you right? It does not earn you more of God's love. That already has been purchased for you in Jesus. But when you are generous, it shows that you have truly received and understand the generous, unearned gift of God's grace given through Jesus Christ. Because who can be showered with so many unearned blessings and then be selfish and stingy towards others in need? We can give generously because we can look to the gospel and what Jesus did for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. But wait, there's more. As if all that wasn't enough. If recognizing that all you have actually belongs to God does not motivate you to give, if recognizing that giving to God is a way to worship him doesn't motivate you to give, if loving God through loving others doesn't motivate you to give, if the confirmation of your identity as one of God's people doesn't motivate you to give, if the gospel fact that Jesus, though he was rich, 
became poor for your sake so that you could become rich through him doesn't motivate you to give. God gives even more. Because when you live a giving life, you make investments for eternal riches in the future. If I had a time machine, one of the things that I would want to do is go back in time to 1997 to tell my parents to invest heavily in a little online bookstore called Amazon.com. Now, they might have scoffed because the internet was still young, mysterious, and dangerous. You didn't want your real name on the internet back in those days. So who would dare put their credit card on the internet just to buy some books? Stupid idea, right? But if they had listened to me with my knowledge of the future and invested just $1,000, they would be millionaires now. And that'd be pretty nice, right? But the thing is, Money gets spent. Stock markets crash. Things you buy depreciate and deteriorate. Those million dollars could have been spent all up now. Maybe something, some bad fortune would happen and they'd still be broke. I don't know if you're broke. I'm broke. In Luke 12, <laughs> Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who had a great year and got even richer. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no room to store all my extra crops. And then he said, I got it. I'm going to tear down my barns build bigger ones, and then put all the extra stuff in there. And then I'll have tons of grain for many years, and I'll say to myself, self, you're awesome. Kick back and enjoy all your stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who's going to get all that stuff you stored up for yourself? And Jesus ended the parable with, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. My time-traveled, sure-bet Amazon stock portfolio would not buy me lasting joy, right? Treasures on earth can be taken from you. They will rot and decay. If nothing else, you will use them up and they'll be gone. Nothing that you can buy lasts forever. Except you can invest the things that God gives you now to buy stock in heaven. The kinds of riches that do not get used up, that never depreciate, that never decay— in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn puts it this way, You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Jesus says in Luke 12, 32 through 33, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to your poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Do you hear how gentle Jesus is with us? He knows that this sounds scary. He knows that it is hard for us to really see that this investment is so much better. And what does he say? Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's already done it, right? You've already been given the kingdom and God was happy to do it. The more we recognize that we already possess everything, the easier it is to let go of the earthly things we have here. That's why Jesus says earlier, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. 
but seek his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. We don't have to stress and worry about taking care of our needs because our good, loving, all-powerful Father in heaven has all the resources already and he knows what we need and he promised to take care of us. And if he is with us, we can handle anything. Sometimes that might mean handling abundant blessings with generosity. Sometimes it might mean tightening our belts and feeling squeezed financially. But all the times it means that God is with you, strengthening you and doing what is best for you. Paul says in Philippians 4, 12 through 13, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what he's decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase or and enrich wait sorry increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God that's 2 Corinthians 9 6 through 11 Don't worry guys bear with me it's a little long we're getting through it <laughs> The early church lived out these truths right in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, Paul wrote, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, then by the will of God also to us. Now, that doesn't sound like that makes sense to me at all. Did you guys catch that? It says, in the middle of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. That doesn't sound like the mixture makes sense to me. Severe trials and extreme poverty do not make me overflow with joy and be richly generous. But if you reread the verse, you'll see that Paul is talking about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. This generous attitude, these joyful giving hearts come not out of their own goodness or personality. It comes from the Spirit. Let's look at Acts 4, 31 to 35. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's the Holy Spirit 
that enables us to give the way that we are meant to give. It's God's grace that frees us from the love of ourselves and the love of money in order to love him through loving others. That's good news, right? Because that means that this is not something that we have to do on our own. On the contrary, it's not something that we can do on our own. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us. We have to ask him to change us. And he will help us because he is even more generous in giving than he wants us to be. Jesus became poor for us. He gave up everything, even his very life, in order to buy you your freedom. He emptied himself so that you could be filled with life. And he didn't do this begrudgingly, right? He didn't do it out of obligation. He did it out of love, out of the joy set before him. And so if he's like that, we know that he's going to take care of us. He's going to continue carrying us through to the end. He's going to complete the good work that he started in us. And also, including in that good work, is the work of changing our hearts to make us generous. And when we fail, we know that we don't have to be like, oh my gosh, we're abandoned, I'm a goat. We don't have to feel that way because we know that Jesus is for us, that his blood covers our sins, and we are constantly moving towards him. And so we know that we can also give generously, just like God gave generously to us, knowing that the God who owns everything will take care of us. His spirit will empower us, and he will richly reward us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a God who gives. We thank you that you held nothing back um, when giving yourself to set us free from sin and from greed and from being shackled by our possessions. Lord, I confess that this is an area that I need a lot of help in, Lord. Even, even this week preparing the sermon, there were many times that came up where I realized I was not using money to glorify you. I was thinking of myself. I was trusting in money. I was worried more about my bank account than about, uh, than about yours. Um, so God, please forgive me, forgive us, and help us to move into freedom and righteousness, Lord, because we know that you forgive us of all of our sins. In Jesus' name. Amen.